You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this journey through Hebrews. Lord, how much of a blessing it's been to me. And uh, as my eyes have been opened to the glory and greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great prophet, priest, and king. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. I'll go ahead and read all of it. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they have not ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin sacrifices, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For there is forgiveness of these. There is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you might find it helpful to have your Bibles open to page 1006. 2006 and 1007, the green ones are red, whatever color it is. All these colors that came into my vocabulary after I got married. You got too much reverb on it. Too much reverb? You can't understand it. This is a joke, I was being serious. Alright, how about this? Test one, two. Is that still two? You want me to go up the steps? Let me step back this way. This side? Uh, if I have if I don't have it, I'll look before this out. Okay. Alright. Well, I will go slowly and I will speak clearly. Knock, knock. There you go. Okay. Alright. So Hebrews chapter 10, you will find it helpful to be on page 1006. And we near the end of the doctrinal considerations and begin to learn of the practical implications of what we have learned thus far. How's that sound? Is that better? I should be more measured in my speech anyway, so. 
So what we have here in chapter 10 is a summary and a conclusion. And remember, he's using this image of a shadow. So we're familiar, or should be, of the idea of the Bible of promise and fulfillment. God makes a promise, and then he fulfills it. And in Hebrews, he's talking about the shadow of things, but that the reality is who? Jesus Christ. Now, he's saying you're right out of the gate, the shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities. He's not saying that the shadows are bad. In fact, the shadows are good, but they're only as good as they speak to a reality. Right? If, if there's a shadow, it means that there's a body. Something is casting the shadow. So the author of Hebrews is saying that Christ stands at the center of history, casting his shadow back over the Old Testament. So the ideas of priesthood, sacrifice, and offering are the shadows of Jesus Christ. Now, the true source is the person and work of this incarnate God, Jesus, particularly his work on the cross. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Because remember, these are Hebrew Christians, and we'll read later on in chapter 10, that are wavering. They're getting shaky about their faith, and they're turning back to the shadows and away from the reality. And so Hebrews is cautioning them against this to not go back to the shadows. But shadows are helpful, as I said. These shadows tell us at least three things. One, the gravity of sin. How does God do sin? Anybody? Is he for it or against it? Right, he's against it. And how is he against it? Right, how about we go back to, remember going back, back in the day to Hebrews chapter 3? And I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. When it comes to sin, God has a zero tolerance policy. No, any transgression against the law is blanketly condemned. Right, so it's not as if God says, well, that's not so bad, that's worse. But God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And so these shadows, the priesthood, the sacrifice, the offering, show us just how seriously God takes sin. And it would have been very visible for a Jew. For a Jew. Why? What would they have witnessed before a sin offering? They would have seen the death, the slaughter of an animal. It's, I grew up uh, in a farming community, and I never really got used to seeing, I was going to say, hogs get slaughtered. And uh, to this day, I can smell blood in my nostrils. So if anything, it happened about a year ago where I knew that somebody had hit a deer and we didn't come up with it until about a mile down the road. I said, I can just, I can tell. And so when you witness something like that, uh, it's going to have an effect and you can't help but think that this animal has died because of my sin. And so it must be a serious thing. And indeed, God does see it as very serious. But two, 
not just the gravity of sin, but it reveals God as righteous and holy. How is it that you can approach God? What has Hebrews been telling us thus far? How is it that you approach God? Well, you could, yes, that's the ultimate, but in the Old Testament. Through the priest, through the priest, through the sacrifices, and even then, was it the priest going in every day and making atonement for sin? How often? One man once a year. One man once a year. So the only way that you can approach God, this is what we read in 9.22, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That God's holiness and righteousness is shown to us in the shadows. And thirdly, the necessity of atonement. Now here's the thing, we have one man on one day going in, but it shows that there's a sense of hopelessness about the sacrifice. That's what we're talking about here in chapter 10. Right? The one who goes in and continually offers every year the same sacrifices, year after year he goes in and does this, it instills in you a sense of hopelessness. And yet, there's also a sense of hope. And that hope is in the reality that even though it's only one man once a year, there is a way. Even if it's just a glimmer of a way, that there is a way to approach God and all of his awesome majesty and light of our sin. But of course, the reality would be something more glorious. Not just one man once a year, but for all people for all time. That's what Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is for us. And so what is the author of Hebrews saying about Jesus' sacrifice here? Well, one, and we've been talking about this a lot, the reality of Jesus' sacrifice. Not that it just happened, it did happen. Historically, we know that's true. But that it's the reality that casts the shadow. And so rather than focusing on the shadow, to focus on the reality. Now I realize when I say that, there are many of you who are saying, well, I don't know about you, Andrew, but it's been a long time since I've, I've sacrificed a goat. But in what other ways are you concentrating on the shadow and not the reality? Because the author of Hebrews also tells us that these things are done under the law. And I've heard this many times. I'm trying to be a good Christian. What makes you a Christian? Well, I follow the Ten Commandments. That's focusing on the shadow and not the reality. It's good that you want to follow the Ten Commandments, but they're actually a reminder of how much you need the Lord Jesus Christ and point to his atoning sacrifice. And so not being concentrated on the shadows, but the reality of Jesus as the once and for all, which is two. Christ's sacrifice was offered once and not repeatedly. You see in verse 11 that every priest stands daily in the service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. As we've been talking about what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down. What do you do after a long day's work in the all? Just sit down. Which means what? You're finished. It is done. I can remember being a child, my father coming in and saying, 
I don't know why y'all are sitting down. You still have work to do. Well, the Heavenly Father is not saying that to his son. He's right to be seated because the work is finished. Now, that Bruce said that a seated priest indicates a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. This is what we mean when we say in the Creed that he ascended into heaven, and where does he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Every time we say the Creed, we're saying it's finished. Christ has done what he came to do. There's nothing to be added to it. And that this is what, so when you're saying the Creed, and you, and you say that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, I want you to say to yourself that you're standing before God as settled. That you being a child of God by grace and faith through the death of Jesus Christ means that your status is settled. That's what we mean when we say that he sits at the right hand of God. And this is hard for us because this is what the enemy does. He tempts us to despair and tries to convince us that our standing before God is not settled. The evil one will try to tempt you to believe otherwise. And so when he does tempt us, we should, as our forefathers said, take our stand in the finished work of Christ. I love the John Newton hymn that we don't sing. But it's, approach my soul the mercy seat. Approach my soul the mercy seat. He writes, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, thou hast died. So if the enemy tempts you, you can say to him, I can face you because I know that Christ is seated and that he is God. This is where we rest. Not in any works of our own, not in any confidence of the flesh. Do you know how to use this? This is not just a doctrine, it's life changing. Do you know how to appropriate this for your own life? Well, what we're told in the book of Revelation is that they overcame him, that is the enemy, by what? By the blood of the Lamb. I love how Eric Alexander puts it when he says that when Satan attacks, and of course that's what Satan means, accuser, he places foul thoughts in our minds by the back door, and then he comes around the front and knocks and asks, now how is it that a Christian like you can have thoughts like that? Do you know that that's how the enemy works? That he actually places evil thoughts and desires and tempts you in your own mind? And the way that he does that is he does sneak up in the back door and throws it in and then runs around the front and says, Now, Christian, how can you think such a thing? And how often we give way and think, Well, maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Instead of saying, No, no, I made my fierce accuser face and tell him that Jesus has died. So do you know where to flee? So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which works the way we read last week, flee from sexual immorality. And when he says flee, he doesn't mean just run away from it, although that's what you ought to do, but you're running to something, or rather you're running to someone. You're fleeing to Jesus and resting in his finished work. The sufficiency of Christ's death for us. Our standing before God is settled. 
What else did the author of Hebrews tell us here in chapter 10? That it removes sin. The cross of Christ removes sin. Isn't it very interesting? In chapter verse 3, but at these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. Have you ever thought about that? That in the Old Testament, when there's a sacrifice for sin, that sacrifice serves as a reminder of sin. But in verse 17 we read, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. But there's a remission of sin. That the sacrifice is not a reminder, but in fact, what Jesus has done is once and for all. And by that verse 10, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So where the Old Testament was a remembrance of sin, simply covered sin, what Jesus did for us on the cross is a remission of sins so that he doesn't need to remember what you've done, the transgressions of your past. You will remember your lawless deeds no more. And it was a once and for all. Which leads us to the understanding that if the sacrifice in the Old Testament is a reminder of sin, then the sacrifice in the New Testament is a remembrance of what? Grace and forgiveness. Have you thought about that? That the Old Testament sacrifice is a reminder of sin, but in the New Testament, Christ's sacrifice on the cross is a reminder of God's grace. In verse 3, the author of Hebrews uses this word reminder. And it's the same word that Jesus uses at the Last Supper. Eat this in remembrance of what? This is my body broken for you. So no longer does the sacrifice to call guilt. But the author of Hebrews is saying, when you look upon the cross of Christ, remember what he's done for you once and for all. It's not a remembrance of guilt, but a reminder of liberation. That you've been set free. And so surely when we look upon the cross of Christ, we're grieved because we know that our sins sent him there. But Jesus says that the cross ought to also be a reminder of our victory over sin and the death and that our status is settled before God. And that they've been removed and not recalled. You know that God has perfect control over his memory? And if we don't? I mean, how many times a week do we say, oh, I must remember that? You know, someone's told a very clever joke, or you've read something in a book, and you think, oh, I need to remember that. And do you? No. Now, when you're going to bed at night, you think, oh, I should have said that. I remember that now. And on the other hand, those things which you try desperately to forget, are you able to forget them? But do you know that God can? That God has the ability to always remember his children? to know what you need and who you are, but that also he has the power to actually remove our sins and our lawless deeds so that he sees them no more, he's forgotten. Full stop. And so when the accuser sets them up against our face and says, says see here, remember what you've done, do you know who doesn't remember? The Lord God Almighty, who has perfect control over his memory. 
Fourthly, Christ's sacrifice has an inward effect. When the Old Testament deals with the outward, the New Testament deals with the inward. Where we see in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, But if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify them for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now we have a tendency to think that the cross is simply a canceling of the debts. Because the Old Testament sacrifices purified the individual. Remember we talked about this before uh, the high priest ran on the day of atonement. He, sacri he sacrificed for himself and his family and went in. And oftentimes what they would do is, well, oftentimes they didn't do it. This is Leviticus 9. I mean, you know that you're in trouble when you start remembering what's in Leviticus. And when they take the blood and actually put it, does anyone know where they would put the blood? You know that in foreign countries where they, where they have the ink on their thumb after they voted, and it shows they voted? Well, that's actually a New Testament idea. They put it on the tip of the ear, white blood there, on your thumb, and on your foot. And so that's what they would do as, as a three-over reminder, like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm in. I have the clearance to come in. But of course what we're seeing here is that that's just an outward purification that allows them to go into the Holy of Holies. It actually doesn't have an inward cleansing moral agent to it. It doesn't change a life. It allows temporary access into the holy place. But where the cross of Christ stands, we have a canceling of the debts, a forgiveness, a remission, a putting away of sins. But not just that, a new life. You're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So 2 Corinthians 5, 17, uh, when you're at home and you're in your bathtub and you're reading this in the original Greek, there's no punctuation. And actually, Paul gets so carried away in the Greek that when he says, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Actually, when he says, if you are in Christ, new creation. It's, it's, he can't even say it. He's so excited. He just blurts out, new creation. You're new. You've been given a new heart. You've been given a new life. You've been given a new mind. Your mind's been renewed. You see the world differently. And so the cross just doesn't deal with sin. It changes you from the inside out. Because an outside cleansing doesn't have the ability or power to cleanse the inside. So there's new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And fifthly, let's just read verse 5. Because I think that we're all familiar, well, if you're a Christian, you're familiar with those four. Or at least I hope. Anything that I've said, you said, yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. But I think the next one might catch you. Because if you were Jewish, you'd get it immediately. But unless you grew up in a Jewish household, you won't get the fifth one. And it's found in verse 5 of all. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have not the desire for taking pleasure with sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. 
that addict, behold, I have come to do your will. Now, what is the nature of the sacrifice in the Old Testament? That which is sacrificed is unwilling and does it involuntarily. Which one of you lambs would like to be sacrificed? Nobody raises their hand, right? That's why we have biblical lines like, as a lamb led to the slaughter. No idea what's coming down the pike. And so the sacrifices in the Old Testament were unwilling and involuntary. Whereas Jesus, his sacrifice was both willing and voluntary. And he draws out this whole idea of, the, of what is often set up as an elder, the demand for sacrifice and the demand for obedience. And sometimes we walk away from the Old Testament thinking, well, God's not really interested in sacrifice. He's really just interested in obedience. And sacrifice anyway, that's kind of an archaic, uh, primitive way to God. What God really wants is obedience. But what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that God wants both. He wants both. He wants sacrifice and he wants obedience. And whereas in the Old Testament, it was kind of one or the other thing, they both find themselves together in the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and said, I have come into this world to do whose will? My Father's will. Not my will, but thy will be done. And so Jesus' life is a willing life laid down as a perfect sacrifice and offering to sin. Obedient to the Father's will. And so when people will try to tell you that the cross was God's plan B, that Jesus didn't really want to do it, but they, that he got caught up in the political machinations of the day. What did he say to Pilate? You don't have any power apart from the God who gives you power. And you don't have the ability to take my life, but I lay it down willingly. And it goes to the cross as a lamb before the slaughter. He sets his face to Jerusalem. And he goes willingly. And with volition. And yet along the way, doesn't he stumble and fall? To the point that somebody has to carry his cross. But he endures it to the end. As a sacrifice that stands in opposition in some ways to the sacrifices of the Old Testament as willing and voluntary as an obedient son to a gracious heavenly father, a sacrifice for our sins. And so, the shadows of the Old Testament, because we're summing everything up, because we're about to get into practical considerations, right? These are how these letters tend to work. Law of doctrine, and then we get into the practical. But I hope that what you've seen is this is intensely practical. But to sum up everything that's been said in the last ten chapters, you say, Andrew, why can't you just do this normally and just get it done with? The shadows help us to understand how God views sin with gravity. They help us understand who God is as righteous and holy, that he can only be approached with blood 
and the necessity of atonement. And then what we see in the sacrifice of Christ, the reality of it. It's not a shadow, it's the real thing. We're going to get to this uh, in uh, chapter 10 later on about what it actually means to be real before God. Two, Christ's sacrifice was offered once and for all and not repeatedly, and now he's seated and our standing before God is secure. Three, the Christ's sacrifice removed sin and where the, where the sacrifice in the Old Testament was a reminder of sin, the sacrifice in the New Testament is a reminder of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Four, Christ's sacrifice has an inward effect and not just an outward effect as the Old Testament had. And fifthly, Christ's sacrifice was willing and voluntary. He was obedient and he was the perfect sacrifice. Okay. Question, have time for questions, comments, or concerns this morning? Yes. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.